Well, hello, all you beautiful homesteaders, land lovers, and farm life dreamers. Today, I'm talking with Bobby and Carrie Sykes at Pleasant Valley Family Farms in Central Ohio. With absolutely zero farming experience, they bought a cattle farm, and over four years' time, the occupants of this valley have watched them absolutely transform their land and soil into an ecological wonder. They've added a pond and a windmill, stopped the corn and the crops, and are fully dedicated to all grass-fed meats today. I'm proud to call them stellar farm neighbors and friends, and I consider Bobby to be the best hay guy around. I'm Judith Farrell Horvath, shepherdess and owner at Fairhill Farm in Central Ohio. I started with illegal backyard chickens while I was still at my white-collar executive job. After getting busted, our family made the leap to farm life. A decade in, we're glad to be growing still because the world is now a different place. This podcast encourages new farmers, shares experiences of the agricultural startup, and the steep learning curve that goes with adopting a farm-fresh lifestyle. My mission is to help you sidestep avoidable errors and unnecessary costs or losses to help you accelerate adopting your farm life. I bring you stories of others who made the same leap, hear of their successes and fails, and their lives today. Without further ado, here's Bobby and Carrie at Pleasant Valley Family Farms. Okay, we're on. Hi, Bobby and Carrie. Welcome. Nice to see Hi, you Judy. guys again. Absolutely. Good to be here. Uh, I'd like you to talk a little bit about yourselves and what you do and introduce everyone listening to Pleasant Valley Family Farms. Firewick. Ladies first. <laughs> uh, well, we are Pleasant Valley Family Farms. Um, we do grass-finished cattle. Um, we do rotational grazing as well with our cattle. Uh, we've also dabbled in a little bit of um, poultry. We've done meat chickens and turkeys, and then we have a few hens as well. Do you want to add to that? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, so we are, um, we are first-generation farmer. Uh, we decided to get into this about three or four years ago. And, uh, you know, we had been looking for property, and a farm came up, a cattle farm came up, and we thought, well, it's a nice nice area nice farm well maybe we ought to have a few cows and uh a few cows turned into about 20 our first year which was exciting and crazy and yeah wow it's uh what a journey and what a learning experience that was um through that process as we started learning about what type of a how to raise cattle you know we're typical millennials. How do you raise cattle? You go on YouTube and you Google search how to raise cattle. <laughs> and of course, you, get, you know, we had a myriad of, uh, of things come up, you know, and there was one early on that came up um, was where a, a guy, a rancher out of Missouri named Greg Judy was talking about um, some ways to grow forage and raise cattle. And, and everything just seemed to click for me because everything I've seen around our area with cattle was cattle in a pen where you, uh, you know, you distribute a feed mixture and a trough and then they, you feed them twice a day and you got to work the cattle. That's how it was. And I said, man, it's going to be a lot of work. We got to scoop manure. We got to do this and that. And then hearing, uh, hearing Greg Judy's philosophy on, uh, doing regenerative grazing where they, where you do everything as natural as possible and try to mimic nature in the process really, really clicked for me. And I think, you know, it, it, finding out, 
a lot of the myths in uh, in grass finished cattle that I that I had gone into it with, um, you know, finding out as we learn more about it, we realize, you know what, I, it, this is something different. It's a little bit more niche and um, no one's doing it around here. And when people say you can't do something or you shouldn't do it a certain way, that's automatically for me. I'm going to try it, see if I can prove the system wrong. Right. And uh, yeah, so we, so we decided to implement uh, Greg's methods and him along with uh, Joel Salatin, obviously another huge, well, well-renowned rancher and farmer here in the States. Um, just a lot of the things they said, the books, the books we read from them, it just made sense. Uh, you know, we've never, I've never been big on medications for myself personally. I've been more of a, well, you know, try to do it by eating healthy and, and you know, focus on immune system. And to me, it made sense to have cattle that did that. And, uh, you know, but I was obviously skeptical about the flavor and the texture of the beef because I love to eat. I love to eat good food. And I had, uh, I had, I had experimented with grass finished beef kind of from the crowd cow butcher box type of thing. And I did not have a good experience. It was, I, I didn't like the flavor. It tasted kind of gamey to me. I didn't like the texture. I could barely chew it. Felt like I was eating rubber. And hmm. uh, I hated the fact that I'd spent all this money on this high dollar steak that I didn't want to eat. Um, so I was really nervous. So again, we did some more research and to figure out that, you know, along the way that not all grass finished beef is created equal and, you know, found out that you really have to focus on genetics that, you know, that most of the animals we're going to find in our area are, are well, hello, little miss. <laughs> most of the animals in our area are, are bred and the genes are, are geared towards the grain finishing operation. Um, which nothing wrong with that. I love a good green finished steak, but you can't take a, an animal like that and just put them on solely on grass and expect to get a good result huh. and, and also not give them the vaccinations and antibiotics and expect to get a good result. Um, so we found a, so I really wanted to find, I wanted to focus on genetics as we started our herd. And, but obviously our first year it was very experimental. So we, we took a three staged approach to get a good sample. So we had, 10, 10 Sam Angus mix um, that we started out with that were bred that we bought with the farm. And uh, we also purchased, I want to say five or six from another local farm that were uh, an Angus or a black Angus. And they were a green fish operation. And then we bought uh, as well uh, around a dozen, 15 from a farm in Eastern Ohio that a guy had been doing it for about 20 years and, and it started with good genetics and continued to call not only for, you know, not only for how it looked or whatever, you know, all the reasons that people want to call their animals, but he would call for flavor. Um, he owned a restaurant along with a ranch and it was very important to him that the, the food he had was good. And so he would call for texture and flavor, which I thought was really interesting and started with a good animal and spent about 16 years kind of perfecting that. And throughout the process came up with an animal that he could turn out into his giant ranch and would only eat grass and mineral. That's all they would give him and water. And if there was any issues with it, they would just call the animal. And he just decided that he didn't, he didn't through experimentation himself, that even treating for black leg and treating for other things, 
that it wasn't worth the stress that they would put on the animal, that often the diseases would be more induced from the stress, not to mention the injuries that him or his hands would sustain through working the cattle, that it was, it was just not worth it. And so he, he set out to create an animal that you could put out and it could survive solely on its own, kind of like they did in nature. And, uh, and I wouldn't say perfected, but came, came across a really good animal that, that we've had tremendous luck with in our three years with 100% breed back um, with good size, around a thousand pound frame. And uh, we haven't had to treat with anything. I mean, there may have been a, a couple of occasions where we've had a, a calf that was a little weak or may have been premature and might, might get an antibiotic, but for our type of operation, that's not an animal we're going to, we're going to eat or sell as beef. That's one we're going to, we would just sell and, you know, with full disclaimer, because, you know, we want to be known as, you know, as our genetics and our beef is completely clean. And so far uh, our, our herd is now um, around 50 and we're expecting to have uh, probably 25 or 30 calves this year depending on what we sell. So it's, it's, it's grown quite a bit and we've been able to, to get three years under our belts with the animals and learned a lot. We, um, we had about a 40%, uh, we had issues with breed back with the Semangus, the 10 Semangus. Um, so obviously that first year we, at the end of the year, we sold them all aside from one, just because she was kind of a mascot cow. She was a, a belted Galloway that everyone loves in the neighborhood. And, and, and she did fine. So the rest we, we called, like, we're not going to deal with this. Um, just some of them rejected their calves. Some of them, the calves were sick, diphtheria, just all kinds of crazy things. And like, you know what? We don't, we don't want this to be in our lineage, in our genetics. Let's just nip it in the bud. Um, the others from the other four or five we bought from another local farm. Um, we also had issues with, well, one was a, a very aggressive mother and uh, she's actually being called cold this year um timing just didn't really work out for us to get rid of her last year but um obviously another focus for us being a family farm and small we wanted cows that weren't going to try to kill us <laughs> so we have a very docile herd a very friendly herd and we want to be able to offer farm tours and not have to worry about you know an overprotective mother or even when we go out and tag our calves um, we tag them within 24 hours of birth so right on pasture we don't want to worry about having to turn our back. So, um, so yeah, out, out of those four, we got from the other farm, we had that issue. We had another one that, uh, our first calf heifer, she had, uh, the calf got stuck. So it had to be pulled we actually lost the calf. Unfortunately, um, the mother managed to manage to survive and actually had a calf the next year. But again, timing, we'll be calling her as well. Um, so yeah, we were two out of, uh, and actually uh, the third one, it, uh, it didn't want anything to do with its calf the first the first year. So and these are all a, we had a bottle these, feed that. I, I'm sorry, I got a question for you. Yeah, so sorry. all of those all of those um, problems that you had were all from, if I'm understanding what you said properly, those were all from cows that you had gotten either well that you had gotten from either continuous grazing or feedlot genetics. Yeah. They Really exactly. But I, yeah. I don't, I'm not saying that, you know, a green finished animal or that is you're going to have issues, but I, I guess where I'm going with that is mm -hmm. that you get what you pay for, like with mm -hmm. anything. And, um, you know, at first when we, we, we paid really good money for the investment with the, uh, the cows we got, um, that were, had been especially called and, and mm -hmm. the genetics for, 
for the type of operation we're running. And yeah, we probably, I think I paid three times as much per animal, per Ooh. bread cow. And, you know, that's in our area. If you say you pay that much for a cow, you're crazy. Why would you do that? Well, to me, that's, that's money in the bank. I know I'm going to get a calf every year. I know I don't have to have the vet out to treat it. I know mm-hmm. I don't have to worry about, I don't have to worry about, you know, just the issues you go along. And, and I, and it's not like I set out to buy junk cows. I actually bought what I was told were good cows, but, you know, for ty- our type of operation, it, it didn't make sense. And th- to say, I guess I'll go back on the flavor and tenderness. That first year I was very nervous and I had, I had a couple of farmers, including the ones that we bought the cattle from say, you know, I'll never eat grass or steak. Yeah. I got to have a drink. It's, it's tough. It's chewy. It's gaming. I had several local people tell me that. And, uh, you know, I was a little bit nervous. I'm a new guy on the block. And, um, the, the first, the first one I had that came from that genetic stock, I didn't experience that. And I was very pleasantly surprised. <laughs> obviously we had some, some paying customers were buying and I was nervous. Oh, are they going to like it? You know, obviously we're small. We want to set up to, to have repeat customers. So, so I was very pleasantly surprised and, you know, throughout the last few years, um, after dialing in some butcher conversations, we've, we've really got what I think is an amazing product that now when I, when I eat a grain finished steak, it, it's good. I like it, but it's, there's something lacking in the flavor, flavor <laughs> department. Texture isn't any different for me. And I attribute a lot of that to, you know, early, especially the first year, we did have a little bit of tenderness, uh, tenderness issues. I wouldn't say it was an issue, but it was noticeably a little bit, a little bit chewier. And um, what we learned through that process was uh, the hang time is critical for grass finished. And in the mm-hmm. conventional model, um, you know, a butcher, they need to keep moving. So to keep something hanging in their freezer more than a couple of weeks was not something they were able to accommodate. So we found a new butcher that was starting out. And obviously, you know, he had some, he had, you know, the things that some of the growing pains you have when you're, you're building a new business, which we, we worked, we worked through him with um, mainly communication, but, but his, uh, he was working closely with the, with the ranch that we bought our cat from. And they obviously were great grass finish and they understood the hang time. And what we worked out with him is the animal can hang no, no, no less than 21 days. And more often than not, they're hanging um, four to four to five weeks which for us has made a huge difference in that. I mean, it's borderline dry age. And so I would say at this point, um, we are so happy with the texture, with the flavor. Yeah, that, that aside, the, the ground beef, it's for burgers, for spaghetti tacos, whatever you're making, there is just nothing better. We, we have people that only buy ground beef. We have one customer that comes and buys he buys 50 pounds of ground beef every three weeks. They eat carnivore and uh, which kind of got me thinking, <laughs> and, but yeah, I'm like, wow, what, how are you going through this much beef? And then he ordered a half beef. And then, you know, six weeks later, he's like, Hey, I need another 50 pounds of ground beef. I'm like, how do you need more beef? Um, Big family. Lots of meat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, I, I feel like I've kind of gone along on along um, and I could, I could go on a lot more about the details, but is there, you know, what questions do you think, um, you've had as you've learned about us and well you know just to give the listeners background um you guys are um little like 
eight tenths of a mile away from my farm. So we're, we're less than a mile away. We're, you know, neighbors in the valley. And it's been interesting to see the land changing. When I used to watch the previous owners of this property and drive past it every day and then see the way that you guys have been making changes and the vegetation changing and the way the animals move around every day. It went from a continuous, mostly grass-fed operation, continuous grazing to rotational grazing. And it's been amazing to me to see how, you know, a field that was full of chicory now is a lush pasture you know at in late spring now and and early summer and before that was not the case and um you want to talk a little bit about the changes you've seen on the land just in the three years that you've been doing rotational grazing yeah absolutely i'd love to talk about that and one area where greg judy and joel salatin or you know other folks that like alan nation where they got a lot of their information from i mean a lot of this model came from new zealand and africa and you know, just through the changes in farming over the decades, you know, kind of starting in the 60s, 70s, we got away from the micro farms and more towards the mega farms and chemical introduction of chemicals and managing, managing land with chemicals and fertilizers and just, just different methods um, that we kind of got away from what has worked for a long time. And um, we, we decided to put those methods into practice day one. When we bought the farm, about half of the farm was... Uh, was a mud hole. It was around February, March when we moved in. You couldn't, we couldn't even get our four by four UTV across a lot, a lot of these fields. And uh, the first thing we did was, uh, you know, disked it up, cultivated it, and we planted a, we planted a, a hay and pasture mix that uh, we got from uh, Walnut Creek Seeds, which is David Brandt. He's also uh, very widely known in the U.S. for uh, his use of cover crops. And uh, using that as opposed to chemicals, fertilizers. Um, so we planted that. And then first year, you know, it was, uh, it was a little bit dismal. And those new fields we established, um, we, we, had good, we had good oats, you know, but it was, uh, those areas were rough. Um, but the second year, the clover came. And <laughs> I thought, holy crap, this is way too much clover. We're going we're gonna to bloat issues from what I saw. And I talked to him about it. He said, don't worry about the clover that's to fix the nitrogen and it's going to, it's going to really help things in the future. And he, he really was right. Um, hmm. the, like I said, the first year I was like, okay, it's going to take some time. Um, so, so year two was when things really started to happen for us because we were doing intense rotational grazing from day one, which for some that's, you know, moving an area once a week. Um, some it's once a day for us, the first year we did once a day, Second year, um, we decided to go to twice a day. Well, the cattle, the cattle are ready to eat in the morning. They're ready to eat in the evening when things cool down in the summer. So we uh, we set up smaller paddocks and we we would use you know poly wire step in posts. We could set up with a four wheeler walking, and with about you know twenty to thirty minutes a day, we could move them in the morning. We could move them in the evening. Um, and the changes we saw when we went to that were amazing astronomical because the animals were were only eating the top thirds of the plant and by timing it correctly we were able to they wouldn't be at the same spot for about 45 days which enabled us to accomplish multiple things Um, number one 
for the flavor and for their health. They were only eating the top third of the plant and we were capturing that at its optimal maturity to eat. Not too young where we're going to impact it and not too old where it's going to be stale and mature and woody. Um, so the cows loved it. I mean, they're eating just plants at their optimal maturity just about all the time. It also enables us to keep the cattle away from their manure. And since they're moving across the farm so quickly, by the time the flies, that larvae in the manure would mature, uh, the animals were already far away. So it helped our fly problem. It kept, keeps the animal away from their manure and urine, which is why I, I attribute to why that's how we don't have to use dewormer. And uh, on that subject, the vet, <laughs> the vet, the first year is like, you got to, you got to. And we pulled a sample after a year um, from a cow and it was absolutely within normal, you know, negative for worms. And so, so that worked for us. And, um, and most importantly, it, I, th I think if you're thinking this from an economic standpoint, uh, and, and, uh, you know, how much you can get animal units per acre, it enables, it enables our pastures to be, I would say 30, 40% more, more efficient because again, they're eating it. At, they're eating that top third of the plant at its optimal maturity. And then they're leaving the bottom third, which instead of grinding it down to nothing, like it happens when you leave one, one spot for more than a, for about a week, it leaves a lot bigger leaf as solar collector, which enables it to absorb more energy from the sun to grow back faster, but also creates kind of a micro rainforest, kind of a micro environment it's it is uh it's it's not shadowing but basically it's it's creating that little that area where the sun doesn't heat up the ground as much and retain is able to retain moisture more and huh. anything that they step on might knock over that that moisture retains under there and that goes back to feed the soil so we're getting we're capturing the dew in the rain we're getting more use out of that it's more efficient there's a lot bigger solar collector. So the grass is growing back so much faster and we're still leaving a lot of leaf, which by the time we get to winter, we still have a lot of plant left, which enables us to get, you know, two or three passes on winter and still graze. So that cuts down on our hay. I mean, I think uh, last year, last year we didn't feed hay until March. And at that, I think we might've only fed, uh, I want to say it was a bale every every two or three days because they're getting most of their forage from the standing grass that was left and also from areas we stockpiled. Um, but yeah, back to, back to the benefits of it, you know, aside from not having to use dewormer, that second year seeing the difference in the areas that were already established was huge, absolutely huge. And, you know, my dad was, he did FAFA as a, you know, when he was younger and he kind of had his notion of how farming is done. And first thing he wanted to know was, all right, when are we tilling the ground? When are we, <laughs> when are we doing this? And then I'm like, well, we're not doing it that way, dad. And <laughs> it was, uh, it was fun to see his, his initials, obviously encouragement, but skepticism turn into, wow, this is really working. And hearing from neighbors, you know, like yourself saying, wow, we've never seen the fields look this good. Um, so yeah, second year was amazing. We still had some chicory issues. We still had some compaction issues. Because the previous uh, previous farmers had had raised larger cattle, you know, conventional, mm. more than 1,400, 1,500 pound carcass weight animals, um, and it was over. It was uh, 
too many animals for the land that they grazed, uh, heavy animals. And uh, there was a lot of compaction issues. We had some, some dandelions, you know, in spots and some weed, you know, just random, random issues where you could see there was a lot of impact. And obviously, four, four decades of dewormer, there was just zero, zero life in the soil. And wow. the first year was very discouraging for me to see, see it, see what we were getting. And the second year started to get encouraging. By the third year was when I really feel like we saw the return on our investment for the rotational grazing. Because it is a huge commitment to say, you're going to move your animals twice a day, every day. And uh, not just throw them out and give them a bale of hay and say, good luck. So, <laughs> uh, so I, I, I mean, looking back after three years, I could say it's, it's 100%. It's 100% worth it. Our, our pastures are, are outstanding. The weeds have, are getting very minimal. <laughs> and the, pasture, and the, the compaction, the compacted fields are, are starting to catch up and, and do much better now. And I, I would say, uh, you know, kind of before we get off this subject, one other thing that has helped um, with moving them twice a day is winter impact. And obviously it's March, typically known for uh, a lot of mud, March mud month, when you want to kind of confine your animals to a spot and have a sacrifice area. But we have no sacrifice area. We haven't had to for three years because <laughs> they're a thousand pound animals, not the big beasts. And you know, we, we could talk about why, you know, the benefits of that, but one in terms of pasture health is uh, we don't destroy our pastures and by moving them, they're not in one area long enough to disturb it. And uh, as opposed to putting a, a round bale in a ring and all the animals congregate to that and kind of destroy that area, mm-hmm. we use an unroller uh, both for an ATV and for, uh, for the really muddy times. Then we also have one on our tractor that we can unroll and we'll unroll it right on pasture. That, that way they're able to graze that and it spreads the animals out. Instead of being concentrated in one area, it spreads them over a strip. And we can focus that hay over some of our poorer areas of the pasture. And anything they step on, pee on, that they don't eat, they're stomping on that. And it's feeding right at the soil. It's feeding those poor areas. And we've got that carbon going. And it's, we've really been able to heal a lot of trouble spots that way. So, yeah, we're excited and, and definitely not looking back. I mean, sure, it's tempting on the the cold days when it's the wind was 35 miles an hour and it was negative 20 wind chills earlier this year on christmas it was it's tempting to say let's just lock them up in a in a barn or in a field somewhere and let them go but yeah it's it's definitely been worth it and the animals having the right genetics i think has been key because to have an animal that you can train to move twice a day and not and not give you trouble it's it's really been paid off maybe carrie you want to Talk any more to that? You've been taking a lot of taking care of the cattle a lot more than me lately. So, yeah, I mean, like he said, I I've for the first probably year and a half was terrified of the cattle. So yeah. I just recently started like really getting in there and, and helping um, our son with with moving them and handling them every day. And I'm just so impressed with like how easy it is. I mean, there we have fifty you know thousand pound animals and they are just walk right with you and give you no trouble. Like they're ready. They know the routine and they just are ready to go to the next paddock. And it's just, it's a lot easier, I think, than most people (laughs) would imagine it to be. Um, And it's fun to get out there too, and just see all the different personalities and get to know, 
each one a little bit and what their tendencies are and, and things like that. Yeah, I got to tell you, cows do definitely make me nervous. I, I grew up around horses and they're, they're thousand pound animals, right? But horses don't worry me as much as cows. I just, I don't know. I don't know what it is. I, I really admire you for um, being willing to jump into farming with the largest animal out there that, that are typically farmed. Yeah. Uh, well, Carrie, I mean, to that end, you just you just talked about being afraid of them for at the beginning. Now, you guys didn't grow up in farming families, right? No, not, no, not at all. Like, like I said, my dad did when he was in high school, but we, you know, I was never around it other than hearing his stories. Okay, so what made you, I mean, we started the, the, this, the story here about what you do on your farm, yeah, but to back up a little bit before that, what happened in your lives where you're like, hey, we're going to buy a farm? What, what caused that decision? <laughs> um, a couple things just over time. Um, Bobby works in the excavating industry and, um, you know, he for a long time would work late nights and be gone forever. And we would drive by farms all the time. I'm like, you should be a farmer instead. So at least you'd be at home working late. Um, and then our son, actually, when he was in high school, trying to decide what he wanted to do after high school, um, he became really interested in farming, which was surprising because he was, you know, he did an online school. So he was very techie. He, he loved gaming. He loved computers. So um, it was surprising to hear that he wanted to do farming. And at that point, we just kind of, you know, would, would browse the internet every now and then just to see land that was available. And we even drove out and looked at a couple places and nothing really felt right. Um, and then just, at the exact right time, we came across this land um, and the husband and wife that owned it were, were so generous. Like they, they literally gave us the tour themselves instead of a realtor. They, you know, taught us everything that they knew. They really took us under, under, you know, their wing and just taught us so much. And, and at that point we're like, you know, we, we really think we can do this. <laughs> so, um, so we just jumped in, which was crazy. Like I, yeah. I grew up in a, you know, <laughs> suburbs. And... Yeah. We, our first year we ordered, uh, was it 400 chickens yeah. and we bought uh, a bunch of cattle. Yeah. Uh, coming from a acre and a half and a ranch home, you know, that I ran the lawnmower and that was about it. So bought hay equipment, <laughs> cattle, which hay equipment is a whole nother story, which has nothing to do with uh, what we're doing here. But, um, yeah, it's kind of, and I, I kind of agree with her. Like, I think initially for me, the motivator was that this is something we could do to help bring our family together. Um, you know, with me, my line of work, I was working 90 hour weeks, 89 hour weeks, home, gone all the time and busy when I'm at work. So not really phone calls. So it was kind of reaching a point in my life where you're like, you know what, what's it, what's it all worth if, if it's, if we don't have our, you know, family's not growing and it's not stronger. So and, and, you know, our son Malachi being at the age of where he's you know, trying to decide what he wants to do with his life. And I, I thought, what a great way to do this. That's, I would watch videos online of other families working together and, and it just kind of inspired me. And I think from there it snowballed um, once we started learning about how you can, you know, heal land with cattle, not destroy land. And, you know, for me, I'm, I'm definitely not 
one that would be on this on the the more you know we got to save the environment well absolutely we do have to save the environment but i'm not i'm not so to speak an evangelist a culture evangelist like uh, some might be but it, it makes sense it makes sense that uh you know how can we do this without you know using chemicals that are going to harm our bodies that are going to go into the animals and then we're eating that meat i, I don't want to eat that i don't think anybody wants to eat that and i the more i learned of what goes into our food uh the more the more concerned i got and i it, it just made sense with you know the diabetes and i personally have have dealt with some type 2 diabetes things and that was kind of the start of my journey mm-hmm. and uh between that and seeing the cancer rates i was like well it makes sense we're using we're using chemicals to try to fight nature. Why are we doing this? Why don't we work with nature? And, and now to know that we're eating clean food and to be able to get, you know, clean milk, like from your farm, which has just been huge. And maybe we're, we're seeing some short-term benefits, but I, I'm, I'm sure the long-term benefits are going to be going to be outstanding. So yeah, a lot, a lot of motivations, I think that went into it. And uh, once we jumped into it, we realized what a passion we had for it. Um, going out in the evenings when the cattle are moved and the sun's going down and they're eating and all you hear is the sound of rip, rip, rip on the grass. And they're coming around you and it's just so peaceful. And I, I, I joke that, you know, it's, it's a lot cheaper than, than therapy. <laughs> and at the end of a, a stressful day to go out and be around them, it's, it's, it's really kind of changed. It's really changed our life. It's really brought our families together, our, our family together. And it's been exciting exciting to be along the way. And I would say too, you know, for, for folks out there that have, have kicked around the idea of homesteading, whether it's getting a few chickens or whether it's getting a couple of cows and it's, it's totally scalable. What we do is uh, it's not really any different if we had one cow, or two cows, as opposed to having 50, it's, it's literally the, the only, the only difference would be the size of the paddocks. I mean, everything else is the same. You've got to have water, you've got to have mineral and they've got to have some pasture to graze. So it's, it's not hard. I mean, if, if we can figure out how to do it, <laughs> uh, it's, uh, yeah, it, what was surprising was the first year, as much as we took on how, how well we did with, uh, obviously we were a sponge for information and knowledge um, and it, it took work, but realized this isn't that, this isn't as hard as, uh, as we thought it could be. So, you know, for those that are feel a little bit intimidated and thinking about getting a thousand pound animal to have or or getting some chickens to raise for meat, um, you just have to jump in head first and you know, I'd say be fearless. But it, <laughs> there's definitely some I mean, there's definitely some thoughts that go into that, like, what am I doing? But, you know, I, I think we wouldn't look back looking back. We wouldn't change a thing maybe not get 400 chickens the first year, but uh, <laughs> yeah. live and learn, live and learn. It's a lot of chickens. That's a, that's not a starter pack. Yeah. You know? So what did you think about your foray into poultry? What, what you did that at the same time as the cows. So that's, that's double brain duty there where you are trying to learn about cows. I mean, ruminants and how they, the, uh, I still don't know much about cows except from what I've seen from your cows. And that's not much, but um, I mean, poultry in itself is its own area to learn about. I mean, birds are very different than cows. There's not even much that's translatable between the species. You learn one thing and you can transfer it to another. I mean, I've got goats and sheep 
and a lot of things are similar. So I kind of lucked out. It's like I only stepped up a half a species. You guys went from no farm experience to cows and chickens, 400 of them, same year. Yeah, I I don't tend to do things. Uh, I, I tend to go overboard with everything I do. Um, <laughs> I like to jump in head first. And if I'm going to do it, we're going to do it. You know, no looking back. But I would I would definitely encourage you to and encourage folks to to maybe step into that when it comes to chickens. Maybe dip your toes in the water a little bit mm-hmm. and not get four hundred the first year. Um, <laughs> luckily, we had an amazing neighbor that had extensive knowledge on on poultry um, but from Fairhill Farm that was able to <laughs> coach us through a lot of issues and a lot of things and questions. And uh, without that, man, I don't know. I mean, even down to teaching us how to process the first first few times so i mean that was definitely great we had good great neighbors great friends that could help us um, but yeah i i, I think it, the poultry make great sense um, you know for us being being an all-natural farm mm-hmm. um, we knew we knew we'd like to get some fertilization and we thought the poultry makes sense because we can keep them out on pasture which we raised all our all of our chickens on pasture and to get the fertilization, we were able to really knock out a lot of those weed trouble spots and fertilize those areas using our chickens and not have to buy fertilizer. The byproduct of that was we had meat. Um, what I would say was the amount of work that, that and the commitment that goes in with the chickens is it's huge. Uh, I mean, yes, it's feasible for somebody to have, you know, to raise 25 meat birds and take care of it in the mornings before work and you know, after work. That's totally doable. Um, if you're thinking about making money with it and doing several, um, just, I would, I would say, realize that it's a, it's, it can be quite, quite the job. Um, you know, early on, we, we wanted to be as self-sustainable as possible. And we bought all the processing equipment to be able to do, you know, several hundred birds at a time. And at at first, uh, you know, that was great. It seemed great. Not, you know, it's basically, it's come to our farm as a day old chick and it leaves, you know, in vacuum sealed bags to customers. And, um, after a couple of years of doing the processing ourselves, we realized, you know what, this is a lot of work and we're having to ask a lot of favors from family, friends, neighbors. And, and you know, it, um, and we were very blessed to have people that wanted to help us. But, you know, you know two, two days worth of work and the amount of money that went into it, um, you know, and propane for the scalder and ice and to invest in an ice machine. And we kind of realized, you know what, maybe this is an area that we should outsource. We're not, we're not, not really to the, to the point where we can, where it's worth, it's worth the time and, and to have the people here. And I think there's people that do this every day that it, uh, it, it, was, it was much more cost effective for them to do that. So that was kind of a lesson we learned earlier on and thinking thinking we wanted to be self-sustaining. Um, yeah, it's nice. We still have the equipment. So if for whatever reason we get into a bind, we're not being able to get into a processor, we can do it ourselves. But that was definitely a part of the part of the farm business that, uh, you, know, you know, now going forward, we, we found that it makes sense to do it that way. But raising them, raising them wasn't bad at all. Um, it's, yeah, it's twice a day. I mean, it can be done once a day, but we, we really want to focus on them, not on pasture impact. So having them on pasture using portable chicken tractors that we made, um, yeah, twice a day worked, worked the best for them. And, and I would encourage anyone getting into poultry, maybe before you want to get the stationary coop to keep 
you know, by the house or by the farm. I, there's lots of scalable, movable, floorless uh, chicken tractor or options out there. And you don't have, it's really good for your, for your, even for your lawn, for your, for your pastures to get the manure out there where it can be used. And the animals love it. Our, our chickens, I want to say, got 40 to 50% of their forage requirements from clover, the grass, the bugs. And that's, that saved huge on the, uh, on the meat bird food consumption and even our layers. Um, they, they would venture out away from the coop, you know, a few hundred feet and find most of their feed there, including the fly larvae in our manure pats, which I think I mentioned cut down on our, our fly population. And keeping the chickens three to four days behind the cattle which is about the, the period where the larvae, larvae start to come up. It was, it, it, I know it helped out quite a bit for our flies and gave them something to eat. And, and they scratched the manure pads, which spread the, the manure to, to help spread out that fertilization in our fields and break down faster. And I'm happy to report we are now seeing significant worm population start to appear on our farm, which is- Earthworms, you mean? Earthworms, yes, yeah. yes, oh, yes. Yeah. Earthworms, which, which come up, they'll you know they and they carry the nutrients down to the soil, which is what is going to just continue continue to snowball and make our, our pastures less compacted and mm. more healthy. So it's so exciting to go out after rain and see see worms or kick up a manure pat and see worms underneath it. Something we never, we definitely did not see the first couple of years. It was, as I you know mentioned, the soil was just just dead from just no, there's no life from all the dewormer because the dewormer, you know, gets in the manure, the worms and earthworms in the ground, eat that manure, kills the earthworms. And now you've got nothing carrying nutrition to your soil. That's very true. Um, I have gotten uh, my first year that I um, created a garden. I got topsoil from a source that had been gathered from the spot where they had, it had had insecticides on it. Um, I didn't realize it at the time, but it had come from um, a farm where they had been using um, chemical dewormers. And I want to say like the soil was dead is the best way to describe that. It was, it was dead soil. So yeah, it was, um, it takes a while, but nature does bounce back. That's the cool thing about it. Yeah. And you know, the first year with a lot of the weeds we saw, a lot of advice we you know we might get is well you just got to disc that up you got to start over or you got to you got to spray it first spray it first with insect with uh, herbicide or, or whatever mm-hmm. and just get up re- replant reestablish and I, I didn't do that I drilled in I drilled in uh, new stuff uh, not disturbing the soil and uh, I, I would say don't look at the weeds as a bad thing look at it as a obviously nature is trying to do something with that weed for example a dandelion and that help break up that compaction. That's obviously an area where it's compacted and those roots will break that up and just allow nature to heal itself. It wants to heal itself. And a lot of weeds are a sign of a lack or an issue somewhere. And that's nature's way of fixing it. And instead of trying to fight it and kill everything and start over, it's going to come back. Let it, let it take its process. I mean, it takes, takes years and years for soil to soil to get to where it needs to be and and instead of don't don't break up that compaction don't don't disc up break up that that ecosystem there allow it to to heal properly soil's alive a lot of people don't realize that yeah i never did i my my, 
in, in excavating and construction, oh, yeah. Yeah. we always look, you know, first thing we do is strip the top. So we'll get that off. That's useless. We don't mm-hmm. want that. And we look for compaction. It's so funny. I joke. My, my day job was, was disturb the earth. Now, <laughs> now I'm, I'm uh, a huge advocate of at the farm. Don't you dare drive that over my fuel. I don't want any compaction. I want as much topsoil as possible. So it's kind of funny. The, uh, the parallel or the polar <laughs> was that dichotomy. Is that a good word for that? Or the opposites. Yeah. Yeah. The dichotomy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Wow. Uh, so Kara, I got a question for you. Um, Bobby talked about how his dad um, was working there on the farm with you guys and giving his opinion and had a little bit of experience. Does your family have any experience in farming? No, none at all. What do um, they think my- of this? they actually love it um i thought they would think i was crazy and (laughs) you know talk about me behind my back but they all seem really interested they love when when i send them pictures of the animals and and our son malachi doing stuff on the farm like they are just our biggest fans they absolutely love it yeah so they've been supportive very supportive yeah that's great. Well, your burgers are top, so it's hard to argue with results. Gotta say, <laughs> gotta say. Yeah, we had we had some strip steaks uh, the other night. That oh my gosh! And I will say the best way to cook a steak is pan seared in a in a cast iron skillet. For those watching, <laughs> want to know how? Uh, <laughs> yep, that's where we're at with it. Um, yeah. Kind of on that subject is really interesting. Um, for the last few years, we've had all this food in our in our freezers that we sell and we have we've met so many amazing people that whether they have health issues or just have wanted to live a healthier lifestyle through what they've learned what goes into the food and um you know i'm embarrassed to say along the way we didn't really eat a lot we we ate a lot we would eat our food and not buy other other meats but we just weren't you know we we tend to eat out a lot and um we kind of both realized we got to make some changes and we've got all this food here and in talking with one of our, uh, one of our good customers um, that eats carnivore family eats carnivore. And it kind of, it got me thinking a little bit, um, obviously with my type two diabetes um, borderline that I need to, I need to really be careful on my carb and sugar intake. And I thought, well, I already like to eat a high protein diet. Why don't we try, why don't, why don't we try this carnivore thing? And, um, you know, I think we've been doing it about five weeks now and like, wow, it's, it's, it's really, it's really kind of changed, changed our perspective on a lot of things food related and has, we've already seen some significant, significant uh, improvements in our own health. And, uh, you know, Carrie with some, some inflammation issues, I think maybe you could speak to that. And then, you know, for me, just overall energy and not having the carb and sugar cravings. So at this point, I almost feel like things happen for a reason. And, you know, when we started this farm, I wasn't really a big, I'm not, not a health craze person, or I'm not one to like follow this diet or that diet or really get into, it. I just like food. If it tastes good, I eat it. And, uh, but now as, as I get a little bit older and, and, and learning more, I, it's, it's amazing for us that we have, we're able to have, uh, a product or, or food right at our fingertips that we're able to raise on our, on our farm, whether it's our eggs that are, you know, pasture raised eggs, um, whether it's our, our beef that's 
grass finished um, on good pasture. So just the, the amazing health benefits from that. I think Carrie could speak a lot more to the, the, that goes into that. And, and obviously, you know, your milk and it's, it's, it's almost, we, we've become kind of self-sustaining and, uh, and are thriving on it. You know, it's not, I'm sure that diet's not good for everybody. For us, it's working. And, and we're really thankful to have put ourselves in a position to where we have access to such, such high quality beef, chicken, and eggs um, that for us are the staples of, of our diet. Carrie, so you've, you've seen significant differences? You've seen improvement? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I actually have tested positive for an autoimmune marker about a year ago um, and just have a ton of inflammation in my body, just joint pain and mm. fatigue and um, just have done a lot of research. Um, also found out that I have a, a gene mutation that I guess doesn't flush out toxins very well out of my body. So just have done a lot of research and met a lot of people who are doing more of like a non-toxic clean living. Um, and some of that's like products in your home or, you know, skincare products and things like that. Um, but also a lot of food stuff. Um, and just literally in the five weeks that we've, you know, just done all animal based, everything clean, no processed sugars, things like that. Um, I've noticed a huge difference and just the inflammation less in my joints, um, less headaches and things like that. So I'm excited to see <laughs> if it keeps getting better and better over time. Um, and it's, it's amazing. I've met so many people, um, that have autoimmune stuff now that before it's like, you never heard of it. And now it's like every other person you meet is, you know, has some sort of autoimmune disease. So, um, but yeah, I've just done a lot of research on the, on the grass finish specifically, just, um, like there's so many extra nutrients in a grass finish that you don't get in the grain. Um, you're also, you know, you've got electrolytes more in there like potassium, magnesium that you're not going to get in the grain finish. You've got, I think it's like 50 time, 50% more, um, omega-3 acids, which is great for like the inflammation and things in the joints. Mm -hmm. Um, there's also another fatty acid that's been known, um, for like fighting cancer, I mean, there's just so much more nutritional value in it. Um, not to mention when you're a lot of the people that are feeding them grains don't know if they were sprayed with chemicals before they got the grains. So you're taking a risk of getting chemicals in the animals. I mean, if the animals are eating it, you're eating it. So, um, so I, yeah, I've noticed a huge difference. I mean, even if I would eat out and get, you know, a steak or something, I could still feel extremely inflamed and, and like my gut health was off, but as soon as we started just eating our own meat and our own, you know, chickens and doing the, the goat's milk and stuff, I've noticed a huge difference. Um, and I've had a lot of other people tell me the same thing. Uh, we had a customer recently just bought a half a beef, um, and he was really, really sick with an autoimmune disease and started eating grass finished and clean products. Um, and he, when he came here, he actually came and did a tour of the farm because he wanted to make sure like we were legitimate because he's like, I never want to go back to being as sick as I was. And yeah. now he's, he owns a gym. He's a personal trainer. He's, you know, he's thriving in his health. So it's, it's really inspiring to see that, you know, we really can make a change in our health that we're, 
for eating healthy, eating clean, eating the right foods. Sounds like you're not just making a change in your own health, but you're enabling other people to make changes in theirs. You're offering a product that is in short supply or difficult to find. Is that is that a correct understanding? Yeah, I um, I have mentioned the customer, you know, that eats carnivores. Funny, they, they order a half a beef every two months and they supplement in between with what we have in stock. Well, the other the other day he came and uh, he picked up 100 pounds of ground beef. And I said, you know, thank you for your continued support of our farm. And, and you know, thank you for the business. And his response was, thank you you're, you're for keeping us alive, was, was his oh. response. And that was one of those moments where I'm like, oh, yeah. that's when it becomes <laughs> worth it, right? You know, the hard work. And because, you know, we obviously with, you know, in the market, um, it, it takes a little bit longer to finish, uh, to finish grass animal, an extra year. Yeah. It takes longer. It takes more labor intensive. It, um mm-hmm. You know, it, it's we're moving them twice a day. So, so the cost is used to be a little bit higher. I think now with the, the supermarket rates, we're right about right on par with conventional. But we haven't raised our prices in three years. We we haven't had to because our only input sunshine and you know grass we have and minerals. So, which is which has kind of been exciting for us to see that. Hey, you know, we used to be unattainable for people, and now we're the less expensive option, and it's people are able to get better quality meat. Um, so that's, we had a lot of, that's amazing. Hold on one second. Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Cause that ahead. is, that is really key. Now that's a huge thing that has happened because of the cost of everything yeah. going up. That's really interesting. The grass fed system now is not so dependent upon the grain, which is very petroleum hungry and then chemical hungry. Absolutely. And yeah. 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 The logistics that go into it, you know, the, the amount of semis that haul this to there and this to there. Yeah. Um, so so, I mean, it's, that's really awesome for us. Um, so to be able to offer this and, and make it more attainable. Mm-hmm. I'm, I, I cut you off just because I was so excited about that. Yeah, I'm trying, I'm I didn't trying realize that you've been able to do that. Oh, okay. So we, so, you know, when we, when we first started doing this and, um, you know, f- friends would approach us or coworkers mm-hmm. or um, just people would call, Hey, you're a farm, you have freezer beef. And when they would hear, you know, hear our prices, um, we got a lot of pushback like wow that's crazy you know i even had a guy that worked for me and said i'm not paying 25 dollars for a chicken you know that's crazy i can get it for you know for this at the supermarket and you know i'm thinking to myself you go you go out to eat at this restaurant bar and get pizza and beer every other night um your whole family could eat two days on this $25 chicken and you're getting good food that's nourishing to you that has good nutrients that's clean um that took a lot of work um to make that way to raise that way um so i i was i was very unapologetic you know in our prices because you know i you know for the amount of work that went into it and for what we were able to offer you know we felt like it was a it was definitely a very good value and uh but to, like i said to, to be able to not have to raise our prices in this market it's great because we're getting a lot more customers that just want to find food because the store doesn't have it or because prices are getting outrageous. And and then we're able to educate them into, okay, yes, we have it, but here's what you're going to find with ours that is going to be different from the store and educate them on the process. And, and that's fun, you know, to meet new people, to share what we've learned um, and, and to see people get excited about that. And uh, yeah, we've really formed while we haven't formed a large customer base because our, we're, we're not looking to, to do mass quantity, we're looking for quality. 
and to be able to, to make, build those relationships, whether it was through farmer's market while we did that or for customers that found us online or locally uh, through Eat Wild. Um, we have people that, that are coming back over and over and saying, thank you for doing this. We can't find this anywhere else. And it, that's really exciting and very gratifying for us to be able to know that, yeah, it's great that we get to enjoy it, but to be able to share that with, with others, it's, it's exciting. It is. And it's, it's, it's um, very gratifying too, to hear when they appreciate that it is what it is. You know, I, many years ago, I had, um, had 200 layers at one point was the most that I ever had laying chickens. And so I had this egg fruit and every other Saturday, Saturday, something it was Saturdays, every other Saturday, I would go into Bexley and I would do the meetup and people would come and they would get their eggs and things like that. And every once in a while, someone would walk over curious and they would say, how much for your eggs? And I would say, 550 a dozen. And this was years ago. I'm like, that's ridiculous. I can get them at Walmart. And I would say, this is a different product. And they would say, an egg is an egg. I'm like, actually, no, it's not. So I would say the same thing about your beef. You know, I can go and I can buy a chicken at Walmart for, you know, not $25. I can go and I can get, you know, ground beef for, you know, on sale back in the day, maybe $3 a pound. It's a different product, obviously. I mean, everything you just said, it's a different product. Yeah, hands down. And that's what, yeah. when I would say, you know, our beef is $5 a pound hanging weight. And they said, oh, I've been paying $2 or two fifty forever. And I'm like, well, yeah, but it's it's not apples to apples. It's apples to oranges. You know, mm -hmm. our, our, our cows are thousand pound carcasses, thousand pound animals around 600 pound hanging weight, mm -hmm. um, smaller framed. They're not going to be loaded up with fat that was put on during the finishing process. So at the end of the day, you're going to, and the meat is more dense and mm. more nutrient dense. So at the end mm. of the day, you're getting a lot more product per pound than you would on a conventional animal where all that fat they put on during the, the finishing part typically just gets cut off and wasted and used somewhere else. And you can't eat bones. That's where the thousand pound versus 1500 pound animal, that, that, that skeleton, that structure is so much bigger. So if you think about it that way, and that's, mm -hmm. and they have, and those animals have to be that big to fit the conventional model. So you can't eat bone. Well, you can't. <laughs> so, so there is, that's where it's, uh, I try to educate folks and say that it's, it's not the same product. And, you know, if you can understand that, that it's to do, to raise it this way, to do it this way, to do it right. It takes a little bit longer and it takes a little bit more work, but it's, it's worth it in the end because I'm not buying fertilizer that I have to, and I'm where I'm subject to market prices. I'm not having to transport the animal and, you know, to here and to there and having to buy grain, things to that subject to market rates. Um, we're all completely self-sustainable and it's, we know, and our customers know at the end of the day, it was raised right here. Everything was here. Everything was clean, fertilized naturally and sanitized by giving the fields that 45 day rest, let the sunshine sanitize things. And I think the flavors is, uh, also speaks for itself. Absolutely. I mean, just in the past few years since you've been making hay, um, I don't have worry and wonder about what's on those fields. Like I buy my hay from you guys. For everyone listening, um, I, I buy my hay from Bobby. And I don't worry that it's been sprayed. I know that it is chemical free. And so here's your virtuous cycle coming back. 
right? So I am feeding the dairy goats this chemical-free hay, which is where we get the milk that then goes back and it feeds your family. And it's coming from the same land in the same valley, right? Now, I don't have land that can be hayed because I've got these crazy hills and I don't have as much land for hay dedicated to hay as you do. But, you know, to anyone listening, you can get creative and you can work with other small farmers and you can come up with a really good um, uh, little partnership ecosystem business and helping each other out ecosystem. You know, it's, it's really something that is, you know, you can negotiate it and you can figure it out. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, regardless of, of where you are, there, there are other farms, you know, that do what we do. We're, we're few and far between, yes. um, especially in, in central Ohio. I don't, I don't know of many others, if any, that are, are doing, are, are finishing the animals and raising them the way we are. Um, I'd love to meet them just to, to learn more. Um, but I, I would say Eat Wild was a really good source of, to find. There are farms that do what we do all over mm-hmm. the nation. And you just have to look for them. Built, it, it's when you can look the person in the eye that raises the food you're going to feed, you're going to eat, you're going to feed your kids with. Mm-hmm. And to be able to take them on a tour and say, this is where our, you know, this is where our food's coming from. You can see the, see the pastures, the animals are eating, compare that to the farm down the, you know, down the road, I can say there's an allergy or, or that you pass by and just notice the details. And it's, you know, is it grazed down to nothing full of manure and mud or the animals standing in that, or are they able to stand in clean grass and look not, and not be stressed. When we move them, there's a sense of excitement, not a sense of desperation. And I, I, I don't see that in some other farms and it's, you know, different models. I, you know, I respect that. I respect, but you know, for us, I love to see that our animals are stress-free because stress is the biggest enemy of these animals. And I think it, it comes through in the end product and how that animal was raised, the stress and how, how that animal was processed, was butchered, or it was, will also have a tremendous effect on um, the texture, the tenderness. If that animal was, you know, it's calm, it gets time to chill out and, and was raised stress-free, it's going to be a much better product. Those are good words of encouragement to anyone who's interested in this. Um, I would also say that, you know, we're not only are we producers, but we're consumers as well. And if you ask for things from your local farmer and they can produce it, give them some time. And, you know, we as farmers will respond to that demand. When someone is interested in pasture raised eggs, will produce it. When someone's interested in that grass finished beef, you'll produce it, you know? So the market will, the market will speak. Absolutely. The more demand there's going to be for the type of product we have, the more we will produce, the more others will can step up and produce that. Um, but you know, if we can, you know, continue to, you know, yeah, these eggs are a dollar less a dozen at the store or $2 less a dozen. Well, you're voting with your money and mm-hmm. if that's the product you want to continue to have. And, you know, that's, that's what you're going to get. And I think I, I would love to see a shift. And I think we see a shift of, of a lot more micro farms and folks doing what we're doing. I, I feel like we kind of started doing it right as right before, you know, right before COVID and right before the, the thought of, wow, I really want to 
know that I can get food and survive. <laughs> right. So, so we kind of started doing that. And after that, we started seeing a, a lot of folks start to get into homesteading. And I think it's great because I would, I would love to see the, the six, you know, six, 8,000 acre farms start to turn into more micro 50 acre, hundred acre farms like they were, you know, in the sixties. There was a, there was a book I read trying to remember the name. I believe it's called The Unsettling of America by Wendell Berry. It was uh, written, written, I want to say back in the 60s, 50s or 60s. The writing is definitely antiquated, but it's amazing. This, this guy totally predicted exactly what happened. Uh, it's almost like he wrote the future of agriculture, our food, healthcare, um, because he was seeing it right at the beginning. Um, when the uh, you know when the lobbies started to come in and change change agriculture and the USDA and he saw the shift of you know the the collapse of the micro farms and the the growth of the mega farms and to where mm -hmm. the little guys just going to make it and I think it's very fascinating and it was prophetic how he wrote that book almost scary scary and I and I I truly hope we see a revival of uh, the micro farms come back because um, it's where we're going to get our clean food and that's the that's the most sustainable way to do it well one of the questions that i like to ask my guests is what do you think about the future of farming and small farming specifically i mean because you know, i have well i haven't spoken to any large farmers at this point but um you know where do you see it going that's actually one of my questions and i have this feeling like you know, it's sort of a natural cycle where something grows and it gets big, even though it's a clump of flowers, right? Like maybe it's a, maybe it's a, I don't know, it's a bunch of irises and they start to choke themselves. So it gets, gets to be such a big clump and you have to divide it into smaller pieces. Otherwise it just becomes unwieldy. And I feel like communities are the same way. They break up into suburbs around cities and even just populations and, and businesses spin off subsets and things like that. I mean, there's just sort of a natural growth division and, and reestablishment. And I wonder if the whole post-World War II USDA, I, I can't remember the name of the guy who said it now, um, but it was, he was famous for saying, hey, all you farmers in there, get big or get out. Right. That, that's like this, right. this iconic right. statement that he made in the post-World War II industrialization of, you know, factory food and things like that. And we factor factoryified, is it or factoryified our food to the point where only 2% of the population are farmers now. It's you know, scary. we're, 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 some, we're, we're, we're some of the 2%, Bobby. <laughs> the we 2%. are. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. yeah. It's, it's very scary. Yeah. It is. Yeah. And, and uh, I, I don't know why we see a, a see a movement of, you know, where cows are bad and, you know, oh, we not. have the things like the impossible burger, which. Oh, my gosh. It's impossible to live if you eat that continually. <laughs> um, you your know, cows have proven that cows are not bad for the environment. Look where, what you've done well, for your soil. Where we see, you know, these food factories that are this new model that universities are studying and yeah. it scares the crap out of me because I see, I see more and more government involvement, more yeah. and more big investor involvement. And I, I think it's safe to say, regardless of uh, what side of the aisle you're on, that um, the more government gets involved, the, the worse it gets. So um, I can give you many examples, but we're not going to debate that today. But I think, uh, I, I think, there's so much information out there now 
that Americans, people in the world aren't, aren't as dumb, aren't as much sheep as perhaps I think these big organizations, these big corporations, you know, government ent entities think we are. And to be able to have this much knowledge and information at our fingertips that, that isn't, you know, we're, we're still not completely censored, right? We can still get some information out there and people are smart. And I see so many people that you would never even expect. Hey, I just got 10 chickens. Can you believe it? I'm like, yes. that's, that's exciting. Hey, we want to get some goats. We want to plant some, some trees, have a little orchard, have a garden. Mm -hmm. And where we're pre-COVID, nobody was thinking about that. I mean, I know we certainly weren't. And uh, so I, I don't know. I think people are, people are smart and I know people are scared too. Because it's if if they're educated, if, if they're allowing themselves to be educated and open their eyes, they, they they're scared, they're nervous. Um, but but to have to have knowledge and to be aware, at least we know how we can how we can prepare, how we can set ourselves up. And for us, having having our farm, it's uh, that's what we're doing. And like you said, um, the claim that cows are bad for the environment, I agree. To do things the way we're doing them. Uh, conventionally, feedlots, transporting them. No, it's not good for the environment. Um, but I know, I know I've seen how much our cattle have healed the land here, how the pasture is doing better, how the cattle have brought in, you know, the birds. It's a whole environment, it's a whole ecosystem here. And to see the soil heal and to see more growth, more plant growth. And I think when managed properly, when we, when we don't try to fight nature, and beat nature when we comply with nature. I, I I think there's hope. There is hope. It's not too far gone, so to speak. Yeah, if people would just go into this with eyes wide open, get as much information as they can, and figure out that they can feed their family, mm -hmm. and to to not have to rely on the supply chain or somebody else for your food. That's that's there's a lot of peace. And there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of power that comes with that. And yes, I, I really would like people to understand that the more you're dependent on somebody for something, the, the less power you have and the less free you are. And to know that the supply chain could be shut down or, or one bird flew away from not having any poultry, not having any eggs or, or whatever it might be. There's a lot of, a lot of crazy things going on in the food supply chain right now. I think we could all agree on. And there's a lot. There's a lot of freedom to know that you you have a relationship with uh, the farmer that's nearby you, or you're raising your own, or you've got a freezer full of food that can last you six months, last you a year. There's a lot of power and peace that comes with it. That until you until you experience it, you, it's hard to know. Absolutely, I, I couldn't agree more, Bobby. Well said. It's it's um peace of mind too, because knowing that there's a problem and not doing anything about it is very anxiety producing. Whereas even just planting a little garden and having some backyard chickens is even it's something small, but it starts that kernel of self-determination. It, it starts that that process that, well, I could grow tomatoes and, you know, I could have my backyard chickens and maybe I can learn how to make bread and maybe I can learn that I can make 35 different things with eggs and not just scramble them, right? So there's a lot of different things. Really? Because that's what I, that's all I know how to do. What I could live on scrambled that? eggs, man. I, I love yes. scrambled eggs. I know. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, and and I think with some with some folks, you know, there might be a sense of, well, I don't think I could do that. I have I live in an apartment. 
right? You know, but there there are ways. There are, I mean, I'm there. There are places you can find, and and I think if you go into it not with a mentality of well, I can't because of X Y Z or because I'm in this position, mm-hmm. but just start do what like you said, do what you can, whether that's you know, a pot in your kitchen next to the window growing yeah, <laughs> tomato plant. I don't know. You know, do, do what you can. And, yeah. Uh, Some basil in the window very, box. It's very okay. rewarding. I was gonna say everything and everything we do is completely scalable. We could have one cow and we could have a couple of chickens. So we had a guy that lives in a little village right in the smack in the middle of this village uh, close by, bought a bread heifer from us. And has this one cow right in his backyard. He has two acres he was able to get. And uh, wow. he rotate, ro- does rotational grazing with this one cow. It's uh, Wait, well, what? He does rotational grazing a, with one cow? Yes, she's since have a calf. It's it, he, he actually called me the other day and wanted to know how we could ban the calf. <laughs> so that, and that's exciting you know, to see. That's he's, he's doing what he can. Yeah, he uh-huh. has two acres, and he knows he can he can raise two can two animals on his on his two acres. That's fantastic. Uh, I have um, sheep in my one field, and I my first year I just did continuous because I wanted to see what would happen, and I didn't know what I was doing with with sheep. Really, I was too busy learning about them and trying not to kill them and I had not enough sheep really to even mow all the grass I wasn't worried about it and then as the years ticked by um, I started um, strip mowing different areas of the field so my my field always looks sort of strange with chunks of different colors but actually I was strip mowing different areas so that the animals would go to an area where it's more desirable and just this past year they started to move after I would after I would mow and I always had a ram in so pound for pound rams tend to be more dangerous than your bull they just are they're just a ram is never safe whereas your bulls are not unsafe I should say as my ram they're big babies yeah, well, good for you. Honestly, that's something like I see a bull yeah, and all it, I can it, think of is like bullfighting well, and, you know, don't be wearing red, right? So I, again, again, be again, that's where we've been strict on if there's an animal that's mildly aggressive, get it out of there. You don't yeah. want those genes passed on. Yeah. You don't want to have to worry, worry about turning your back on an animal and right. invest in good docile cows if you're going to do it. That way I good can... Tip. I can trust that my hundred pound wife is going to go out and, and, and move these cattle without having to worry about it. And that's, that's huge. If you, especially when you get your kids involved Yeah. and you know, if you're inexperienced as well. So yeah, it's been huge and spend the money, get, get, get good animals, or you're going to end up spending way more in vet bills and just and, and knocked out knees. And I've heard so many horror stories. Yeah. Uh, there's a joke I, I heard. The only thing dumber than a, than a, than a cow is a cow farmer. <laughs> Somebody said that. <laughs> he said, yeah, we've been raising cattle for two decades, three decades. And my grandpa always says, the only thing dumber than a cow is a person that raises cows. I'm like, well, you're raising the wrong cows. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's not very nice. Hey, that's what he that. said about himself. It's so. terrible. That's sort of, that's not even self-deprecating. That's just I'm like, sorry. yeah, yeah. don't even like, don't, don't put down farmers. Like if no, anyone, no, no, no. anyone coming into, oh, no, I, I'm the saying you are obviously, but anyone coming into agriculture is going to be like, yo, it's surprising. Like if you have to sit down and calculate how much hay do you need for the winter time? 
based on how many animals you have, just that math alone will make people's eyes roll if they haven't been in agriculture or it's trying so to figure dynamic. out the dosage of a medication based on the concentration, based on the weight. Oh my goodness. It's, it's so, so dynamic. It is, is truly an art. And I, you know, I think to, to do a grass finished operation, mm -hmm. um, you know, I've heard you're more of a grass farmer than a, than a cow farmer. And, and it's true to be able to, and we made mistakes our, our first year you know i i saw these videos where the grass was three feet tall two feet tall these beautiful pastures and i thought i equated good pastures with two or three feet tall grass and i had this one field that was really compacted actually a lot of it the farm was really compacted and i'm like all right i'm gonna let it grow until it gets this tall and I didn't know anything about maturity at that point here i am this ignorant guy so i literally turned 10, 12 acres into just this wooden stemmy mess. I turned the cattle into it and they acted mad and they wouldn't eat it. I'm like, what's wrong with you cows? It's a fresh, fresh pasture. It hasn't been touched in four months in, in July. Why don't you like it, right? Spring rush and everything. All stemmed out and seeded out. And Oh man, some of the mistakes I made. But, you know, but to learn how to manage that. And sometimes, you know, for us, that meant brush hogging in the spring flush. There's some areas we just couldn't keep up with the amount of cows we have. You know, in the spring, we wish we had three times as many cows and in the winter we had, wish we had a third, right? Mm -hmm. So to learn that, all right, we're not going to get to that. Let's brush hog it. That's, those clippings are just going to feed the soil mm -hmm. and it's going to keep that plant right at optimal stage. And then to be able to schedule that to know, all right, my cattle are going to be in this area by this time and how much it rains or how much it doesn't rain. It's, it's so dynamic and I think has taken us, especially getting through, going through winters, taken us, I mean, even after three years, we by far, we have so much more to learn, but to, we, we learned so much the first, the first year and, and how to do it. It's, but it's been fun. It's a challenge. I mean, you're, you're dealing with nature, you're dealing with weather, um, yeah. especially in Ohio, which you never know what you're going to have. So. Yeah, it's highly variable. Just when you think you have it figured out, then we have a spring like we have now where our grass is growing like crazy in March, March 1st. <laughs> the yeah. grass is green. Who expected that? Yeah, there's buds on the trees and leaves are popping out in the underbrush. And then it's going to be 19 degrees. Um, it's going down into the 20s and teens again. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I completely sympathize. And um, talking to Malachi um who you know your son um guys uh it has actually given me a lot of inspiration to do rotational grazing on just my five acre front field um which i thought was going to be too small to do so i just sure. put in fewer sheep than i could hand than um i than i was able to carry and i just kept it i just kept it a small flock that's fine it's manageable but after seeing improvements with just that strip mowing and seeing how the animals will move and now i have a new ram and he's younger and he's a very different temperament than my last ram good stock ain't cheap cheap stock ain't good right um uh got a new ram and um my last ram he wasn't he wasn't aggressive he was actually so friendly he wanted to play all the time and an animal that wants to charge and play is just not good so i was afraid to be in the pasture with him on foot to be doing the poly tape and be doing that rotation every single day i felt um exposed and unsafe so i mean yeah that's that's a very real that's a very real thing 
and this year with a new ram and he's young i am encouraged and i'm taking a page out of your playbook and i'm saying it right now on my podcast that i'm gonna start actually moving my sheep around with poly tape it's official this year. it's official We're it's official it. i'm doing it I've been talking about it. I've been espousing it. And then I started strip mowing and letting the animals do it themselves. I've seen a difference. Um, I've got some weedy areas that are improved, but I've got other areas that are getting worse. And I just got to dig in and I got I to gotta make those changes and make it happen and decide we're doing it this year. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's great. We, I, I would say I would encourage, encourage people that just – get a get a lot of information or get information from a lot of different sources um yeah you know there's some things like in greg judy's operation that you know we we took we we took to heart and like this he does sheep this, too right Doesn't he, he does do he, he, ra- he raises a a, a a parasite free saint croix cross i think it is saint croix yeah so he does sheep um yeah so we took a lot from him that we were able to apply to our farm. We took a lot from Joel Salatin. We took a lot from folks around here. We visited farms before we started this. We would visit, you know, as, as many thing, pe- farms and talk to as many people as possible mm-hmm. and because not, there's not one size fits all and you know, every farm's different. Every, there's different logistical things. Um, so I would say don't, don't, don't feel like it has to look exactly like this. That's kind of my, been my issue, my my temptation is, oh, it doesn't look like this guy's farm, so we got to do this. But no, that, that works for him and his climate and his area. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So what do you guys, like you mentioned, it's dynamic. It's always changing. It's an art. What are you guys doing in the next, you know, this year and the next coming five years? Are you, do you have plans for changes or improvements or expansion or something? Um, it, improvement wise you know one, one thing we did when we first when we first got the farm was we put in water infrastructure uh, because to be able to move animals the way we do tightly um, they're in you know sometimes half acre paddocks sometimes one acre paddock sometimes two acre paddocks depending on the quality of the field the time of year um, how fast we're moving them so if it's calving season you know, there's, there's so many factors that go into it um, because obviously, a, you know, a nursing, a nursing mom has got two cows there. So it's a the forage requirements are different. Uh, so we, we invested, uh, we invested in putting a, um, a totally sustainable uh, water system. Um, that way we've got, we're able to get water every, within every 300 feet. Um, that way the cows aren't, you know, cattle aren't having to walk far and we could really be flexible with our paddocks. Um, so that was an investment. But one area we were really weak on the farm was fencing. And uh, the farm we bought had lots of interior um, high tensile fencing. Um, some was falling apart, but we decided rather than rehab that, we're pulling it out, which might seem crazy. We're pulling out all this, all this fencing, but the way we move them and rotate them, we don't want to get locked into following the exact same path all the time. You know, to be able to be flexible and shift, and we're just setting up with poly wire and stepping posts. So, and the cattle respect that. We, we actually have been using that for perimeter fencing, which, you know, has kept me awake at night sometimes. And that's, yeah. that's, that's um, why we're now to the point where, you know, this year we're going to be investing and in putting in some, just a really good um, perimeter fence around the entire farm. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's kind of our goal. It's the, the material have been, has been in the barn for a year and a half, but you know, we get busy. And <laughs> so that's kind of a focus for this year. Um, 
expansion wise, we're going to be at around 75, 75, 80 head um, by, wow. by fall. So starting out with, I think the first year we had around 12 or 13 going into winter. I said, mm -hmm. we, we called, we called a lot. The ones that were like, we don't want these ones. So to be able to, to see that we're in our fourth year now and to see the return on our investment um, so far, it's been labor, uh, but be able to see the money we spent on those animals. And now they're, you know, their kids are having kids, you know, or, or their calves are having calves, mm -hmm. put it. So at this point, you know, the herd's getting to the size um, where we could probably stand to winter, you know, around that many for, for the acres we have that's on pasture. Um, but we're actually very excited. We just, uh, we just had another neighbor that just bought uh, some land right behind us that wants to convert 10 acres into pasture um, um, for us to hay and it's right adjacent to our field so oh it looks gosh. like we are going to be able it's just happened this week just out of the oh, blue so excited congratulations so yeah it looks like we're going to be able to uh, to be able to expand the herd a little bit more but we're also at the point now where we're going to be able to to start offering um, selling our animals, um, whether they're as calves or bred heifers, um, calf cow pairs, bulls. Um, we have we have a guy that buys a lot of steers from us that he finishes out his family buys them mm -hmm. because you know he's he's done it three years in a row now. He's bought our steers and he's had such good luck with them that he just hey how many steers do you have for me? I want them again. You know those last last year they were phenomenal. They finished out great. So but we're excited that you know now we're able to to offer that to other other folks who might think they might want to do a, a grass finished operation. Now I will say that you know our animals are bred to thrive on a non-natural program. So to put them in to another program where you're I, I I have had some people finish out on grain and it's worked out, but you know these ones, these are these animals are are finely tuned to to not have to have have to have the vet out all the time, not have to work them, not have to deworm them, not have to vaccinate them, but very low maintenance. Um, you're going to get a calf every year. And that's so, yeah, I, I, I don't know how they might do in another, another type of operation, but if that's what you're looking to do, um, you know, whether it's us or we can maybe help steer you in a, in a direction to, to get some, to get some start out, we would be more than happy to talk to you about now that we're able to offer those and we've kept the best of our best. So yeah. yeah. So, Phenomenal stock. Do you only do uh, pickups or do you ship? Um, oh yeah, we, we offer we offer delivery as well. Uh, we there's a there's a guy about two hours away. We delivered we delivered to and and obviously we can deliver. I would say all over the eastern half of the United States. Just you know, just comes down to comes down to, to logistics and price and and what mm -hmm. makes sense economically. Um, and if it's something where it's not us, you know, there's other shippers we could recommend. So yeah, we are right now we're able to haul up to, up to about, uh, about probably, probably 15 calf cow pairs. Not bad at all. So do you guys want to, um, do you want to uh, give information on how people can follow your operation and where they can follow you and, and see what you guys are up to? Absolutely. You want to talk about that? Um, yes. <laughs> we have a um, Facebook page, Pleasant Valley Family Farms. Um, we also have a website, um, which is pleasantvalleyfamilyfarms.com. Um, pretty easy to find. Yeah. <laughs> or you can also reach out to me personally on Facebook. Um, 
Carrie, K-E-R-R-Y, and my last name Sykes, S-Y-K-E-S. Yeah, or you email email us at info at pleasantvalleyfamilyfarms.com and, and then we can get touched by phone and we're, we're more than happy to have anybody that wants to come out and and see the farm and whether it's to see the animals, perhaps they might want be interested in buying some to start their own or just to see how we do things and ask questions. We we love to love to give tours and it's always exciting to to share share what we've learned over over the last few years and, and answer any questions. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming and uh, talking with us and uh, sharing a little bit about your farm and about your philosophy and your journey. It's very encouraging and uh, it's been really fun. Well, absolutely. Thank you so much for having us and and obviously for all of your support and uh, assistance you've offered to us as we've learned. And <laughs> and obviously the goat's milk is uh, is phenomenal. <laughs> I'm glad you like it. And likewise, Bobby, um, I would not have my front field under control if you had not gone out and started doing the work on it and bailing that. And yeah, you've been able to do work on that front field and where many other prior people have failed. So um, you need to get that fenced in and start to graze that somehow. That's if I can get those springs under control, then I am all over that because that would add another three acres on the front. So yeah, I'd really like to do that. Sure. Maybe we can figure it out. I, I heard that you know someone who does some digging stuff, right? Who can help us. I do. Yeah. 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 I might know a guy. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. You take care. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for listening today. If you like this podcast, please let me know by subscribing and following. You can also visit me at www.fairhillfarm.blog for more stories and farm products.